Hello and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gill. Here with me is ecologist and founder of Disciple Science, Professor Dale Gentry. Hello, welcome. Also here is Disciple Science teacher and theologian, Joel Juxtock. Hello, everyone. It's a beautiful day to be exploring the intersection of science and faith. Thank you for joining us. Let's get started. Today, we're talking about our first video, video number one, what is behind the tension between science and faith. You can watch that video at disciplescience.com or on our YouTube channel. Yeah, in that uh, uh, video, and as we discussed a little bit last week, we went through some of the conflicts that came out of the historic intersection between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as well, but mostly focusing on the Old Testament and some of the early versions of, of the modern scientific method that used data collection, uh, this idea we called empiricism, so collecting data about the world to answer your questions, uh, rather than revelation and scripture. If you haven't heard it yet, uh, we can talk more about that transition away from scripture or the church as the primary source of answers to all of our questions, to science taking over, I don't want to say taking over, but for, to science starting to play a role as a reliable source of knowledge. And that transition obviously um, caused some controversy. And so the perception of incompatibility between science and scripture is an aspect of the conflict and it need, it's, a big, it's a big aspect and it's a big topic that we will talk about in much greater depth in the future. So if you missed that discussion, uh, go back, listen to it later. You won't be too lost without it today, but it's certainly a good one. Uh, our first video also introduces a different topic, uh, how we practice science today and how that influences the way we think about the world. So uh, you call that our worldview. Dale, uh, you want to talk more about that? Sure, yeah. Uh, so the scientific method, as we all understand it today, is, uh, has just been tremendously successful at solving problems and helping us understand uh, how the world works. You know, that's, that's kind of an understatement, but we really have a lot of confidence in science's ability to, to work for us. And there are lots of great examples of how science dug us out of holes that we had gotten stuck in, um, you know, real just a uh, few, you know, quick examples there, you know, the story of how cholera was just killing millions of people, I think millions of people, maybe when it's in a hyperbole, but ki killing many, many people. Uh, and we didn't understand what it was caused from. And there was a sense that it came from, uh, from the air and that you would inhale bad air and then it would cause you sick, uh, sorry, and that you would inhale bad air and that it would make you sick. And then we later learned that cholera came from, from the water. And it, that was a derivative of using a data gathering process to track, you know, s sources of uh, inf cholera infections and figure out where they came from. And uh, we developed antibiotics and we have a greater sense of where the earth is relative to the sun. And you know, in my field of ecology, there is this sense that, you know, fire was evil and bad and all of them should be put out. And we now have a much more nuanced view of how fire can provide very positive benefits. And we now have this tension of, of you know, do we put fires out or do we let them burn? Because through fire ecology, we understand that they're of great importance in forest ecosystems. So uh, long story short, uh, we made sense of these questions uh, we, we solve these issues by using the scientific method. Uh, and this is a, a concept I find that, you know, it's a term that we throw around, and yet some people are, are, don't quite grasp, like, what is the scientific method and how is it different from, 
from any other method for answering questions. Um, so if you go back in time to your time in middle school or high school or college, I, I imagine the scientific method was described in the first chapter of, of almost every introductory science textbook um, in, in public education. Um, and so if you haven't uh, taken a science class for a while, it's basically this process where you, it's, it's you know, five or six step process. So start with making observations about your surroundings um, and asking questions about those things. So uh, in my field, I would, you know, look at uh, the woodpeckers that I study and say, why do they, why do they eat that type of insect? You know, why don't they eat these other things? Um, or, you know, why, uh, why do some trees respond to fire in a way that's good for them and other trees die from fire, something like that? Uh, or maybe in the healthcare field, how do, how do bacteria develop resistance to antibiotics? So we ask, make these observations about what's going on. We ask questions um, that are uh, just curious to us or maybe of use to us. And then we create an educated guess. Uh, we call that a hypothesis. So we speculate that you know, uh, some fires have, or so, sorry, some trees have thick bark and other trees have thin bark and maybe the thickness of their bark influences their, their vulnerability to, to, um, to mortality or to dying in a, in a fire, something like that. And then where the scientific method really kicks in is that you collect data to answer those questions. And that's different from the old reason of the of the philosophers that have existed before that they just kind of reasoned through it in their minds and just tried to make sense out of it in their own mind and science says that's not adequate we need to collect data and we need to make sure that our explanations fit the data that we collect so um let's just give a simple example if i can if i don't want to belabor this point too much but um something that might be relative to everybody and and you'll find if you if you get pulled into this podcast, many of my examples end up going into the bird world because that's where I that's where I feel so at home. So let's say you have a question about uh, you know you love birds and you want to attract more birds to your backyard, and so you ask the question, how could I attract more birds? And so you could do a couple of experiments. You could put up some bird feeders or some bird or a bird bath or a bird house. And then, um, and then maybe in your buddy's yard, you don't do those things and then you collect some data. You just say, how often do I see birds or how many birds do I see on a given day and draw your conclusions based on those data that you collect. And, and it might not pan out the way, you, the way you expect. Maybe that bird feeder attracts a predator and so birds don't come because the predator is sitting on top of it waiting for lunch to fly by or something. So you never know. The whole point of science is that you can't answer it with just what you think is going to happen. You collect data to answer those questions. And so uh, that's probably um, not revelatory to anybody, uh, but there's a modern approach to science that's really widely held, but not really widely understood, and it's this idea called methodological naturalism. And this is more of a topic actually in the, in the field of the philosophy of science than it is in the science themselves. I, I actually didn't encounter this. Nobody taught me methodological naturalism in my undergraduate science education or, my or in graduate school, it wasn't until I got involved in teaching this intersection between science and faith here at, at this um, Christian college that I realized um, that this approach to science is, is uh, one way to do science, but it's not the only way. 
uh, and therefore it's somewhat controversial. So methodological naturalism is this approach that you can't use anything supernatural in your explanations for what's going on in the world. So it's not a commitment that says you can't believe in God. It just says you can't use God. You can't use supernatural things to explain what's what's going on. So if we can tease that word apart, so your methods, your scientific method, has to be natural, methodological naturalism. There's no supernatural explanation. So if I see more birds in my backyard, I can't say, you know, God wants to smile on me today and bring me more cute fluttery things into my yard. And so I, I think it's uh, God intervened by sending me more birds. Now, that, there might be some truth to that, but it's not a scientific explanation. So we are at this point then where we have this sense of cause and effect with natural processes like why birds go one place or, or the other, or, or maybe bigger questions like where did the first life come from on the earth? And here, methodological naturalism, this naturalistic approach to science, says you can't use God as an explanation for where life came from. We have to seek an explanation that is relying only on natural processes, natural things, no, no divine action, no, no God stepping in to, to do something. So, um, so methodological naturalism insists that science only use naturalistic explanations to um, talk about how, how, how the world works. So, all right, so I'm just going to jump into, um, to clarify, and I think you, you did a great job explaining that term, but as the, so, the, so just thinking back to where, where we got, you know, as the scientific method is growing into what we know it is today, uh, you know, grounded in empiricism, observable evidence, uh, and, and also this commitment that you just described, a commitment to never appeal to the supernatural as an explanation for anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so the scientific method, by definition, would never offer God as a reason for anything observable happening in the world because of the tenets of methodological naturalism? Is that right? Right. Yep. That's, that's correct. So, so if you're, if you're doing <clears throat> science according to sort of mainstream views of science, you're just not allowed to use God as an explanation uh, for anything. And so that, that kind of helps explain that Richard Dawkins quote that we put in the video. He, he and others are frustrated that religion is not compatible with science because, you know, I think he says it leaves us satisfied with not understanding the world. And what he means is that he's worried that Christians will get stuck in their research, will come across, you know, some question that we are having a hard time answering, you know, like that question, where did life come from? And we'll just say, well, uh, we think because we can't come up with a good answer based on our current methods, then we'll say that God did it. And, you know, as Christians, we might find that perfectly adequate. But you can imagine, and I don't know that we want to empathize with Richard Dawkins, but let's do for just a moment. If, you're a, if you don't believe in God, then you say, well, that's, that's leaving us hanging. What if there is an explanation out there? And if we use God as an explanation, then it's going to prevent us from, <clears throat> from finding it, from, from looking for it. Um, and so uh, the, those that adhere to this you know, view that God doesn't exist or that God shouldn't be involved in science are really worried that using God as an explanation will, um, will leave us uh, wanting in our ability to actually explain things in, in the world, that we, we won't be able to uncover things that we, 
that we uh, do if we continue to look. All right, so, uh, so Dale, you, um, you said maybe we don't want to empathize with Richard Dawkins, but um, you know, what's, what's he really getting? What, what would be the danger of, um, you know, like what, what's the danger that he's really warning us against with that, uh, with that idea? Yeah, well, I think that, that we actually will find that our history of appealing to God and Scripture for scientific understandings or, or mechanisms about how the world works um, it explains why modern scientists are adamant that it's just it's not an appropriate approach to answering our questions. So, um, for example, I was uh, reading uh, this historical account of the development of science lately, and they were talking about the outbreak of a smallpox epidemic up in New England in the 18th century. And there was a local pastor uh, who called, you know, to, to prayer. I said, "Let's we need to repent and we need to." Uh, pray that this uh, outbreak will not reach our church or our community, right? And so I think that's a perfect approach to that, you know, outbreak. We should should pray and we should petition God. Um, And then we might also say that's not where we should end that that solution. Uh, And because at the same time as saying, let's pray, they also rejected the um, availability of a vaccine. Now, vaccines were, were new, and so maybe we we should empathize with them as well. That this was a this was not a, a a tried and tested and understood solution, but it was this solution that was proposed. And he said, "No, we don't want the vaccine. We're just going to pray." Um, and so, this idea of of not allowing scientific solutions to maybe play in with our prayer solutions simultaneously. Um, might be dangerous, right? And so not not to say that God can't intervene and and protect us, but that sometimes God wants to work through natural processes. There's another really fascinating account. Uh, I I was really blown away by this. I had never heard this story, but uh, one of the most remarkable discoveries um, uh, of the early uh, scientific era was this, uh, made by this Swiss uh, scientific uh, scientist named Abraham Trimley, and he was a uh, he was a zoologist. He was like me, studied animals, and so he uh, discovered these little invertebrates called polyps, and he started tinkering with them, and he found that you could split these things. Right, you could kind of cut one polyp in half, and then it would grow into two polyps. And we've probably heard of these sorts of things happening if you've been in a biology class. Uh, And so that's not really shocking to us. But at the time, that was a big problem because there were many Christians that held to this idea that every uh, organism, every living thing had an indivisible soul, an indivisible soul, right? So this idea that if you could take one organism and split it and get two organisms, people are like, wait a minute. What happened to the soul of that organism? Did it also get split? Or, you know, how, how can these two organisms both be living because they can't both be animated by the same soul? And so these ideas that are, you know, we've encountered these, they're not surprises to us. They were just earth shattering for early people. And it led to this idea that, you know, that maybe what scripture has and contains is not intended to answer our scientific questions. Here, let me just give you one more quick example. So most of you have probably heard of Rene Descartes. He was a French uh, mathematician and philosopher. He's most famous for the idea of, uh, I think, therefore I am. And so he was trying to 
you know, simplify his understanding of the world. And he said, at least I know if I have thoughts, then I must exist. So that's kind of a side note. Now, he also had this idea that was held by quite a few other people that only humans are conscious and only humans have minds and only humans have souls. So a a different belief than what we heard earlier that all organisms have an indivisible soul. So Descartes among and others said, no, only humans have a soul. And so because only humans have a soul, they also thought that only humans can experience pain and love and joy. And basically only humans can experience emotions. And so this came to this idea that animals were basically these sort of machines that had flesh, not, not literal machines, but but, you know, basically some organism that was not a full living, feeling, emotive, you know, emotion having organism in the way humans were. And this led to some actually really awful things. It was so hard to read about this. They were torturing animals and saying, look at how amazing it is. They appear to really be in pain, but we know they're not because they don't have <laughs> souls, right? And I was like, oh my goodness, right? This is... This is an example of how allowing theology to dictate our understanding about the natural world is, is dangerous if that theology is not solid, right? And so it's, it, it's, it's really, you know, you can see where Dawkins and other people are apprehensive about using scripture to answer our questions because those scriptures are not always easy to understand. Yeah, these are really good examples of what I would call our uh, misapplication of ideas that come from Scripture. And it's this, there's a sense that um, we're extrapolating some thoughts, some ideas that come from the Scriptures and then trying to reassemble them in a way that makes sense uh, for us. And each of these examples, Dale, really help us understand why Scripture would have been questioned as a source of scientific mm-hmm. information, especially when we extrapolate uh, an idea from one place and then apply it to another place that may be or may not be um, directly related to that. Um, so what I would like to do, is if we could kind of zoom back out and get back to methodological naturalism, I'm curious about that. If you could talk more about kind of the origin of, of where that philosophy of science or that piece of philosophy of science emerged. Sure, sure, yeah, yep. So uh, first I want to make a distinction that that name is fairly new. The word, uh, the term methodological naturalism is, is fairly recent, only in the past few decades. I think it came about in the 80s. But but the idea is old. The idea came about um, a few hundred years ago, kind of during the emergence of modern science, the scientific revolution. And so it, uh, again, grew out of a rejection of the idea of using scripture and theology to explain the natural world, uh, and it also a desire to understand how, how God designed the, the universe. And so um, the, the approach to studying nature that doesn't allow God as an explanation actually came from Christians. That might be a little bit counterintuitive, but let me say that again, this idea that we shouldn't use God to explain how the world works came from scientists who were all very passionately practicing Christians. And it's not too much of a stretch to say that most of the early scientists, most of the early scientists were, who were responsible for the science were people who were, um, who were following God. Uh, Galileo was a really devout Catholic, and he argued that nature never violates the terms of the laws that were imposed on her. Those are his words, right? So the idea that God imposed the laws and that therefore we can study those laws and understand them. Francis Bacon was a 
scientist who also was really uh, another devout Christian, and he was really adamant that science and theology are are separate and should be kept separate. Robert Boyle was um, uh, really uh, important in the formation of modern chemistry, and he uh, saw the discovery of the laws of nature as a religious act. Uh, He saw God running through creation and the natural processes that God used to make creation function perfectly compatible with God. Um, And he also said it's okay that God occasionally intervenes to achieve particular needs, like the resurrection of Jesus or the incarnation or uh, things like that. Isaac Newton is another fascinating example of this. He was actually criticized by many people because he spent most of the latter part of his life studying theology. And a lot of people said, you know, Newton, you're actually better as a scientist, and there's some reason to that. We won't get into that today, but he had he had some he was a Christian, but he had some theological ideas that were a little bit weird. But um, all the same, he was uh, so you know the 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 point is that he was such a devout Christian that he was more interested in studying Scripture than he was in studying science, which is what he's really famous for. So all of these people, you know, Galileo and Bacon and Boyle and Newton, among others, they held this strong view that science. Should, should hold a naturalistic approach. Um, and so it wasn't called science yet, it was called natural philosophy. But they, they were adamant that natural philosophy only use a naturalistic approach. And part of it was a reaction to some of these stories that I told earlier. We saw you know, some of the, maybe the failures to solve some of our health concerns and you know, the awful experiments done on these poor animals and the, the being stifled by a polyp that can split from one organism into two and not being able to apply that. They learned from those experiences and they said, maybe we shouldn't apply um, uh, God and and supernatural explanations into how the world works. Uh, and, and so that's it, it's really remarkable that Christians are the source of this idea. Um, but this idea is now much more controversial now than it was then. I, 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 it's like a pendulum, you know. So the pendulum was on one side where we used theology and scripture to answer every question, and we now kind of say, mm, maybe that's not the appropriate use of scripture. But now it's swinging in the other direction, and some people think that it's gone too far and that we don't allow science to tink, think or talk about God in any form, in any way. And so there's this modern movement called the intelligent design movement. Most of you probably heard of the concept of intelligent design. And again, we're not going to do it justice today, but it's, it's quite fascinating and, and complex in that um, not everybody who is a Christian in the, science, in the sciences is an adherent to this concept of intelligent design theory. So I'm just going to leave it there for now. Hopefully that's not too confusing. But anyhow, the modern intelligent design movement is really vocally against methodological naturalism because they don't like that it restricts the use of God to explain how the world works and how things came to be. Um, So those that have this intelligent design mindset uh, feel that they can detect the action of God in nature in some of those things we've talked about earlier, like where did life come from? Mainstream science has failed thus far to come up with an explanation for how life could come about, at least in a way that's satisfactory to everybody, that's, you know, that's testable and, and really makes sense. There are some ideas out there, but they're just not, they're not complete. And so the intelligent design movement says that because science can't explain, explain it, and they think science will never explain it, 
let's use uh, divine action to say that God is responsible for taking non-living things and turning them into living things and uh, using what we would call a, a miracle. Um, so, 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 so even, so that maybe that's kind of a side note. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But even among Christians who do embrace methodological naturalism, the, you know, the, the, the modern descendants of, of Newton and Galileo and, and Boyle and, and people that think that we should just stick to, to science um, or stick to naturalistic approaches are worried that if we use that in science, and maybe in part because science is so good at answering questions and solving problems, that it will leak into our brain and we'll start to think that we shouldn't use God to address any of our questions, not just the scientific ones. Um, and so that might develop into what we call a worldview, right? A worldview that is based on the idea that there's only natural things. There's, there's just this naturalistic worldview that says no God, no miracles, no afterlife, no just atoms and leptons and et cetera, et cetera, right? We're all just made out of material things and there's nothing more to us. Just thinking about your example, the bird thing, right? And I thought to myself, well, if somebody really thought that they, they, they needed to hear from God one day and a bird flew into their yard and they interpreted that as a sign of peace, which is something that I do hear fairly regularly, yeah. then how, how, do we, you know, how, do we, how do we make sense of that if we're talking about it in terms of methodological naturalism? Yeah. And at the same time, I think we, we, we can give ourselves the freedom to um, make sense of the world and the symbols in it without tying ourselves so closely to this idea that God wouldn't intervene in such a way that we um, that there's there's no relevance to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, completely. I, I think I think that's that's the rub, right? Is that science um, is so good at answering questions, scientific questions, that and, and this is the concern is that people fear that they're going to take this scientific approach to answering questions and use it to answer every question. And so if somebody feels like, you know, a, a, a bird showing up in their yard brought them peace and they see some role for God in that process, you know, it, uh, a Dawkins character would say, no, you, you can't use that explanation, right? That they're, that, um, and and that's that's the nature of this debate is is does science's approach to answering questions limit our ability to to seek answers from other sources? You know, for example, um, in in my work with patients and families in the hospital setting, one of the things that you know I I think of faced with daily is that there are there are clinical realities that dictate the reasons why people die. And uh, and yet, each and every day, uh, or time, I should say, that I'm encountered with death, um, it's amazing to me the degree to which we as clinicians are reluctant to pinpoint the timing of death or other aspects of it because um, we just don't know. Mm. And that's the piece about working in medicine that makes me feel so small inside because I, I don't, um, I'm humbled by the fact that we know so much about so many, you know, diseases and, and um, 
you know, things that negatively impact our health as humans. And yet, when it comes down to uh, life and death, at times, there's simply no explanation. Mm. Um, you know, and there have been numerous accounts where, um, you know, um, in, in my experience where um, we've, we've seen people live much longer than we would have thought, and there are other times that it's gone more quickly. And in, in all instances, uh, it's important to to wonder, you know, why um, why that might be the case. That's part of our being. That's part of the way that we're all wired is to ask that question. And that's one of the most profound questions of our existence. And there's certainly reason to suggest that um, that science is a part of that, that these things happen because of what we know and have observed and can study and even see in medicine. But then there are also times um, that things happen for a certain reason um, just because they did, and there really is no explanation. Some mm. could call it happenstance or mm. coincidence, um, and others might call it something more. But uh, from my perspective, as a as a chaplain, um, as a teacher, as a pastor, um, and a person who who walks with people with the intent of really helping them to make meaning of their experiences, I'm very sensitive to the fact that we can all embrace. Um, some unique reasons for why things might happen the way mm. they do that are particular to us mm. um, and our understanding of God um, or relationship with God. Mm. So to just reflect on what you said, Joel, um, it, the the worldview of methodological naturalism would would sort of reject that approach. They would say that there's maybe not you know, it, the that worldview might say, there's nothing that's beyond explanation. That just means we have to find, you know, we have to gather more evidence. We got to get more, more data. Um, and they might say that, um, th that finding meaning in, uh, in, in things that we have natural explanations for, they, they, they might reject that practice altogether. But what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, you spend time every day with, uh, with people you know where that that act that practice of finding meaning um, is extremely valuable, especially in some of the most painful and difficult moments of their life. Yeah, and I think in some ways your question. Where, I mean, we're talking a little bit about apples and oranges in the sense that a philosophy of science uh, is is a different philosophy than considering you know our existential reality and or the ways that we make sense of the world um, in personal and spiritual ways. However. Really what we're talking about here is, is that if methodological naturalism is taken to the extreme, that there is no room for God, then these two things do feel incompatible. Mm -hmm. And I think yep. sometimes that's the, that's the challenge that, that we're faced with is that mm -hmm. it feels like the either or um, and um, appreciating that there are, I think, multiple ways to hold this reality is important. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's precisely what we're trying to get at here is that Science works well uh, at answering certain questions, but it it's this method isn't appropriate for every question, and um, and that it shouldn't be applied to to some of these bigger questions about me meaning and, and purpose and existence and and hope. Um, and we, I, I was actually thinking, Joel, as you were talking, of, of almost how your existence as a as a chaplain. Is a, is a good model for this, right? If a patient is dealing with some circumstance in a hospital, right, they get a visit from a physician 
and they get answers from that physician about what's going on. Uh, and, that, and those answers are, I don't, I don't know, probably not exclusively, but primarily about what's going on with their body, with their natural self. And then you follow in and provide different answers, different sorts of explanations. Is that is that how you see it? Is that a fair approach that you are using two different individuals to give different types of answers about different types of questions? Is that a is that a good model for this idea of how science and faith can coexist? In a sense, yeah. I mean, just uh, just throw one one caveat out. I, uh, I as a chaplain, I wouldn't say my role is to provide answers. Mm, um, yeah, good point. It's, yeah. It's, I would say <laughs> my intent is to to create a space where together we can hold a person's pain, and and it's in that though that we uh, can appreciate. Um, the ways that a person might be making sense of their reality. Um, yeah. But certainly there are cases where um, people arrive at a hospital, receive clear medical advice, and, and choose not to follow it mm. um, for theological reasons um, mm. <laughs> because they're waiting on, on miracles or other things. And um, uh, so there, there is a tension there too uh, in terms of navigating that. And, um, so while these these kind of ways of thinking about the world um, may be, um, they may feel sort of separate at times in terms of asking scientific questions. And I think this is an example where we see a very tangible uh, rub between the two um, and how we, how we negotiate that is very important. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, boy, I know we, we probably all have some, some baggage there as far as how to you know, what's the most appropriate response to advice from a physician or finding either meaning or just how to, how to deal with, with pain and, and suffering. But I, uh, you know, I, I do like this, this discussion and this opportunity to, to talk about how at least um, this, this approach to science and this, this uh, philosophy that says, well, we shouldn't use God um, it shouldn't be applied to to all things, and, and I, that was that was the the point we're trying to get across in the video is that science works well in its realm, but that um, and it's a uh, if you're familiar, there's this term called scientism. It's kind of a pejorative term. Most people that think this way probably wouldn't label themselves as such, but it's, it's the idea that science can answer all questions, and I think that's what we want to distance ourselves from a little bit is that there's room for scripture and theology to speak into our lives and to provide answers that science can't. And some of them are not testable in the way that scientific approaches uh, can be, but that doesn't mean they're not legitimate approaches. Um, so this is really, really valuable dialogue. Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there for now. There's a lot of ideas that we are going to spend a lot of time on uh, in the future. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing, uh, you know, just thinking about our website, uh, disciplescience.com, it has a big long list of, uh, of videos we're planning to make, of topics we're planning to explore. Um, if I was listening in the last 30 minutes or so, uh, I just, you know, added about 16 to that list. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, we're, uh, we're going to so leave it there for this week. Um, we're going to have, uh, like I said, a bunch of follow-up uh, videos and, and, and conversations uh, that get at some of these, you know, maybe re resolving some of these tensions or at least just uh, giving, uh, giving all of you and, and, and all of us uh, more tools on, on balancing 
uh, and, and, and holding those tensions uh, as we as we go through life. So um, come back and listen to us uh, next week. And uh, thanks so much for thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit organization exploring the intersection of science and faith. If you agree it's important for Christians to engage with science and these questions, please support us by making a donation on our website, disciplescience.com. We couldn't do this without audience members like you. If this discussion stirred up any questions of your own, and we hope it did, we hope you'll send those to us either at our email address at disciplescience1 at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at disciplescience or submit them on our Facebook page. We also want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. You can tell others about Disciple Science by sharing a link to a video or podcast or by leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.